<laughs> Good morning, friends. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning, live stream friends as well. I'm excited to be with you this morning and to share some words. Uh, we're going to take a look at a passage from Matthew chapter 12. And full disclosure, Adrienne, when she was up here, said that I was going to do something brilliant. Let's like lower those expectations, okay? Um, what I want to share with you today is really commentary. So I, I think that this passage that we'll talk about is really um, powerful on its own accord. It's one of those scriptures, one of those uh, stories in scripture that's very clear and very direct, and it's hard to misinterpret. So the whole sermon could really just be reading the, um, reading the passage a few times. So what I want to do is I want to let the passage really speak to us, and then I want to offer some commentary, some additional ways of thinking about the words that Jesus is saying, some additional ways of applying the words that Jesus is saying. And I think that um, the story is really quite uh, convicting, especially for modern Christianity. So I would, I would really ask for humility as we lean into this passage. I would ask for us not to cast the, the interpretation of the passage on someone else, but to really use this opportunity to look inside of our own lives, our own hearts, our own souls, and ask, what is this passage challenging me to do? Because what's true about this passage, and we'll get there in a second, if my beard makes this sound weird, just like let me know. Sarah, Sarah was telling me to do something. Oh, closer to my mouth. Oh, it's hard to hear me. Okay. Is that better? Can people hear? We're good? Okay. All right. John's going to help. And I know it's going to scratch you for a second, but that's going to be better. Is that good? Yeah. Hey, thank you. <laughs> okay, so I'll start over. Just kidding. Um, but I, I do want to really challenge us that when we read this passage, there's a tendency for us to think about other Christians who are different from us and apply this passage to them and use it as a way of lifting ourselves up to say, at least we're not like those people and look at what those Christians are doing wrong. I want us to really just pause and use the opportunity to reflect internally. So before we get to the passage, let me start with a story about myself, because I like to make everything about myself. I used to be a professional Christian. For 10 years of my life, I was a pastor. I went to school to be a pastor. I got a Bible degree, which translates so well when you go outside of, of pastoring into uh, the business world. Um, but for 10 years of my life, I spent time cultivating uh, faith and relationships with middle schoolers, high schoolers and college-age students, and it was some of the best years of my life, some of the hardest years of my life. I served as a pastor in a very uh, fundamental stream of Christianity, a very conservative stream of Christianity, which got me in a lot of trouble. And there's this one story that I think was like the inflection point for me that really caused me to question what I was doing in this space and what, more importantly, collectively, we were doing as Christians in the world. And I'm sharing this story not to say that I'm this great super Christian, okay? I am a typical dude, a normal dude. There's nothing like super about me. So please bear all this with a grain of salt, put this in proper perspective. I'm just sharing this as an example to ask a question. 
So th there was a time in, in my um, ministry where I was invited to speak on a college campus. There was a thing called a Bible Bowl happening. Does anybody know what a Bible Bowl is? They're, they're weird, right? Um, so Bible Bowls are these things where kids come to this place, they spend months studying a passage or a chapter of scripture, and then they compete against each other like a debate spectrum to see who is most knowledgeable about this passage and this, uh, this, this way of scripture. I had problems with this, okay? I mean, full transparency, I thought this stuff was just like a bunch of crap. I didn't really care about it. And the reason I didn't care about it, like, uh, and I want to be very clear, I think it's important to study scripture. I think it's important to pray and to seek the word of God. I think it's really vital that as Christians, we immerse ourselves in what God is telling us throughout history as well as throughout modern days. I think it's the wrong message when we get kids to compete against each other to trick them into finding these answers out through scripture. So as a pastor, I made a decision probably like in my younger years, I was more like brave in these areas, I guess. I said, we're, we're not really going to do that. So for 40 years, that church that I pastored at had been doing that with kids. Suddenly I was there. I was like, yeah, we're not doing that. It became a thing. I said, okay, we'll do it. It's fine. We'll take our kids to this thing. So our kids go to this thing. I get invited to speak um, at this, this Bible Bowl. So throughout the course of a day, I'm sharing a message in front of about five to 600 teenagers. And the way they did it was these teenagers would rotate in. So I spoke 11 times throughout the course of a day, the same exact message. Super exhausting, but it's not about me. Um, in one of these times I was speaking, I noticed as I'm communicating, there's an older gentleman with a group of kids who is leaned over in his seat with a camcorder, and he's videoing with a scowl on his face. This was like pre-iPhone days. I'm that old. Um, and I remember thinking in my head, that's weird, and that's probably like not a good thing. So my message was, was really focused on this passage where Jesus is communicating with his disciples, and he's asking them, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, we say that you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the God. Jesus says, you're right, that's who I am. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My message for this group of students was, we, we have this idea that as Christians, as a church, we sequester ourselves off and build up little gates. And our whole role of being faithful and being Christian is just to sit in place and protect this way of interpreting scripture and way of interpreting the world. That it's our job to sit back and to kind of make sure that we keep this thing as pure as possible. But what Jesus says in that scripture, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is he's saying this movement that I'm creating is a proactive force in the world. Why do you build a gate as a community or as a civilization, you build a gate because you're afraid. You don't build a gate because you feel like you're in power. You build gates and walls because you see something on the horizon that you say, holy crap, I don't want any part of that. We have to ward ourselves off from that. And Jesus is saying in that scripture, my kingdom is an affront against the gates of hell. So that was my message, which I felt like was a pretty good message. This guy comes up to me after the, the fact, and he says, listen, 
I have some, some bones to pick with you. That's how we started the conversation. I said, okay, um, please keep in mind I have five minutes before another group comes in. And he says, I am very offended about everything that you had to say. I said, okay, could you tell me more about that? What were you offended about? He said, well, first of all, you said, holy crap, which is the same thing as cussing in front of these kids. I said, well, okay, maybe I shouldn't have used that word, but that's like semantics. And he said, I, I just, like, he was really kind of like yelling at me in this moment. And I remember saying, listen, it's very clear that we're not going to agree on everything. But what we should do is understand that I'm trying to help people follow God and understand God. You're trying to help people follow God and understand God. And we're doing this together. Let's give each other some grace. I have to go now speak to this other group and try and like recover from this conversation that's soul stealing. <laughs> and so he moved on. And I thought that was the end of the conversation. But what happened next was um, a, a little bit of like a micro movement. There were letters written about me sent out to churches across the Northeast. There were letters sent out to colleges in the Northeast. And there were bans. I was banned from a campus from speaking because it was deemed that I was not open to instruction and that I was rebelling against God. And that moment, like, I think was an inflection point to me. Because it was a moment where I sat back and I said, this is so monumentally stupid. Like, what are we warring against? Why are we, as followers of Christ, arguing about such meaningless things? When look outside the walls of our church at what is happening, look at all the people who are struggling, look at all the violence, the oppression, the hunger, look at all these things that Jesus spent his entire ministry talking about, and we're arguing about what versions of Bibles we use. It's a bunch of meaningless junk. And the reason I tell you that story is to introduce you to this passage in Matthew. So I want to read it because it speaks pretty plainly. And then I want to offer some points, and then I want to reread it again at the end. So here in this passage, we have Jesus walking around on the Sabbath day. In Matthew 12, verse 1, if anyone wants to follow along, if not, you can just listen. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested, Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Then Jesus went over to their synagogue, where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath. They were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. And he answered, if you have a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, 
Wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. So this passage, I think, is extraordinary. And it's a revolutionary moment from from Jesus, a moment when the crux of his meaning, when the purpose of his movement really comes into clear focus for everyone who's around. And it's a moment when he goes from being a nuisance to being a threat to the empire. When he goes from being someone who's maybe making a few headlines here and there to someone who has to be conspired against and killed because he is threatening the fundamental fabric of society and of the power structures of the day. So what do we need to learn from this passage? And to learn about what we need to learn from this passage, which is the worst phrase that's ever been uh, phrased together, we want to talk about a couple of things. Um, We want to talk about control. We want to talk about Sabbath and what Sabbath is, what Sabbath is really meant to be. We want to talk about gatekeepers. We want to talk about imagination. And we want to talk about what God is really like. Maybe I should shave my beard. My wife would really like that. Um, and just forewarning, I know this, these are a lot of points. And if you've been in a lot of sermons, you're like, this is going to take forever. I promise it won't. We're going to make some quick points about each of, each of these things. So first, let's, let's talk about control. And let's talk about control by understanding uh, the, the religious and societal systems of Jesus' day. Jesus lived uh, and his ministry operated in the Roman Empire, which was a polytheistic society a society that believed in multiple gods and multiple goddesses. There were gods and goddesses for different things, for different reasons. Within that empire was a sect of faith called Judaism. Judaism was an ancient faith uh, that came from the Israelites who were living in Roman times. Judaism had separate sects, much like today. We have Baptists and Pentecostals, and Catholics and different streams of faith. There was that reality and that dynamic happening in this time. Under Judaism were Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes. I, I can never remember how to say the E one. Um, say it? Essenes, yes. I'm very bad at pronouncing words. These were the major streams of Judaistic faith. And they each had their own different interpretations. Pharisees, which are the group that um, we see here in this passage, were the group that intertwined law and faith. They were the ones who had legal backgrounds. They were schooled in very legal things. Um, They were a wealthy component of society. They were small landowners in a Roman empire, which gave them power, gave them privilege. They were well-versed in uh, the civil laws of the day. They were also brought up understanding and interpreting the laws of God, the laws of, the, of Judaism. And more importantly for Pharisees, they're kind of like 
point of pride was that they were the keepers of the traditions of the ancient fathers. And that's really, really important to note. They believed in not interpreting too widely the ancient traditions that had been passed on from generation to generation to generation. As the world moved forward, they sought to protect this system that had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And in light of that, what tended to happen was their movement lost sight of the plot of things. In their passion for protecting the laws and the traditions, they begin to miss the plot of what God was doing back then and what God is doing right then. And I think Christianity typically tends, at least in Western Christianity, American Christianity, we fall privy to that, to that same trap. We read scripture and we miss what God was doing in the scripture. We think about what faith looks like today and we maybe adhere certain standards to it and we miss what God is doing today. It's entirely plausible to be super religious and entirely miss the plot of what Jesus is doing in our midst. And I think for every person of faith, that should not be a message that makes, that makes us angry. It should be a message that makes us look deeply inside ourselves. If I miss the plot of what Jesus is doing, if I've been focusing on the wrong things and missed what Jesus is wanting me to focus on entirely. So these Pharisees become very powerful in their culture. And to be a Pharisee is to be someone that's in control. And control is something that uh, I, I think impacts us all in different ways. We all seek to be in control of things. We all seek to be in that position of authority. And that's what's happening here with the Pharisees. Doesn't, isn't it kind of weird when you read this passage? For the Pharisees, isn't it weird that they have this visceral reaction to what God is doing? I mean, think about the things that Jesus does in this passage. He lets his disciples eat because they're hungry. He makes a man who has a deformed hand have a whole hand. And that angers people. This is a way of missing the plot of what Jesus is doing. And it's because their psyches had been conditioned to focus on the application of a law versus the intention of the movement. And so here we find this people who had been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for the arrival of this Messiah, who had been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for Jesus, for the Messiah, for the Son of God to come and make his kingdom known on earth. And they're missing it entirely when it's in their midst. Which brings us to Sabbath. What is Sabbath? Sabbath is a, a concept I think that's pretty foreign to us in, in Western cultures and in Western societies. It's something that feels very Old Testament for us or, or not super Christian-y for us today. Sabbath is really, really quite beautiful. And a lot of Jewish rabbis, if you talk to Jewish rabbis or read Jewish rabbis even, even today, They'll use a phrase that Sabbath is God's greatest gift to humanity. And that seems interesting to me. Why, why is that? Where did Sabbath come from? Where did it originate? Uh, there's a lot of debate about that. The origins of Sabbath come from the creation narrative, 
who after God spends six days creating and making life and making the world as we know it, the scripture says that God rested. And if you look at the language, the ancient language, it can be interpreted that on the seventh day, God exhaled, which is a way of saying after working, God took a breath and took a minute. What does that mean for us? It means that there's something in our lives and in our, our way of being that we need to be attuned to. We need to be attuned that our lives aren't just about creating and doing and making, but that our lives are about being, that we are human beings and not human doings. That's a line from Rob Bell, which I love. I love that line. We are human beings, not human doings. Sabbath became more of a thing after the Israelites fled Egypt. When they fled Egyptian bondage, they're wandering in the wilderness, and then they start forming. What does it mean to be our own people in this context? We've left slavery. We've left oppression. We're on our own. We're figuring out life. We're figuring out who we are. A central tenant of early ancient life was this practice of Sabbath. Again, for people who are oppressed, for people who are slaves in early times, Sabbath was a way of reminding them your value is not found in what you produce. Your value is not found in what you control. Your value is found in who you are. Who you are is a being created by God. And imagio di, you are the image of God, an image bearer of God. So Sabbath became a way of reorienting yourself to your finiteness in the world a way of placing proper context around this life that we live. The suffering, the pain, the beauty, the joy, all expressions of living this life that God has given us. My greatest value is not to create something or produce something or do something. My greatest value is to be who God created me to be. Now, that's beautiful. What happened is what was intended to be a gift for people became a noose for people. Because as people of faith can sometimes do, they started attaching all sorts of stipulations and regulations to that. Sabbath over the centuries became less about resting and more about performing. Less about paying attention to who I am and the rhythms of the world and the rhythms of the cosmos and more about making sure that I don't do very specific things and that I do these other things. It became a way of controlling people. And in that moment, we see the reality of Christianity played out time and time again. This makes me think of all the times that we as Christians have used faith not as a way of inviting people into freedom, but as a way of inviting people or casting people into doom. If you think about the AIDS crisis, the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s and Christians' response to that, mainstream Christian, please give me some grace here, right? We're talking about stuff that gets the headlines, not every Christian. Mainstream response was, that's God's devastation. That disease is God's punishment on that community. Hurricane Katrina, a narrative that really formed during that time was that was a punishment of God against a 
a modern-day um, um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Why is it that we so easily cast others aside when God calls us to love and invite people into freedom? So I want to go now from Sabbath. Sabbath, the original intention was this way of being in the world that reorients ourselves to who we are and to the God that loves and to the God that creates into this idea of gatekeepers. At some point, and I don't know when this happened, I think it's natural probably in humans. It's part of our, our human DNA. We went from becoming kingdom movers and grace seekers and um, people who reflect God's image to being gatekeepers. We thought that our role in the world was to make sure that people believed the right things and acted the right way and did the right things. We sought to make sure that people understood who was in and who was out in the kingdom. That you're not good enough to be in if you do these certain things. God doesn't love you as much if you're doing these certain things. And we took great pride in being these people who had kind of the, the voice and power of God at our disposal. But I think there's another way of reflecting God's movement here. Rather than viewing ourselves as gatekeepers, and let's be honest, that's like really freaking exhausting, right? Isn't, if any of you have ever fell into that way of believing or that way of moving in the world, it's super exhausting to constantly be thinking about how do I have to tell these people? How can I convert these people? How can I make sure that these people do that thing? It's not our role. Our role is not saving people. Our role is loving people. So instead of being gatekeepers, how can we be uh, wall crushers and grace spreaders? I couldn't find a better phrase for grace spreaders. I'm sorry. Sarah and I talked about it the other night, and she was like, that makes me think of like super spreaders. I'm like, I know. I just don't know another word. I'm not super creative. Um, but this is what I want to invite you into this morning. I want to invite you into a, a posture. A way of interpreting God's movement, not as something that you have to control, not as something that is contingent upon you, but as something that you get to be a part of, as something that you get to witness, as something that you get to extend. And I think that looks different than maybe the way that it, it is under the gatekeeping regime. So my question is, what is the role of Christians in the world today? And I want to just ask you some questions. I'm not going to make points, but we're going to go through a series of questions. And I have a terrible memory. I have ADD. So um, Carlton's going to scan through these with me. So what if evangelism is, Carlton, if you go to that next one, what if evangelism is less about preaching and more about listening? What if it's less about making a point and more about having a real conversation, practicing empathy, understanding what is happening in our midst? On our next one, what if evangelism is less about saving and more about coming alongside? What if I don't view my role as the savior in the equation? 
the person who has to fix something? What if I view my role as someone who just gets to come alongside someone in their life and in their suffering and in their joy? I, d I don't mean to put them on the spot, but John, I think of you as a prime example of this. Asia's Hope is not a movement that's formed out of one man's desire to save the planet. It's moved out of, and I'm, maybe I'm interpreting, it's moved out of one man's commitment to come alongside people who desperately need someone to be alongside of them. I think that we see more beautiful outcomes when we don't think that our end goal is to save people, but when we think about the entire thing is about the journey of being alongside them. Next. What if evangelism is less about converting and more about helping? How would that change the way you think about how you're a witness of the gospel in this world? What if you didn't think you had to have tracks and like messages and talking points that you carried to people, but what if your way of thinking about how can I extend the kingdom of God was looking around at your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and saying, where can I provide some help? Where can I do something that makes someone's life a little bit better and that brings and introduces a little bit more joy and authenticity to their life? Next. What if evangelism is less about our views and more about loving people? What if it was less about our opinions and our headlines and our interpretations and our commentary? And what if we just stripped away all of that and truly sought as individuals and as a community of believers to authentically just love people. In what new areas would we be propelled to serve? In what new ways, what new creative ways and expressions would we find if we thought that our greatest call was just simply to love? Love causes us to respond and act differently. It causes us to do wild things because we truly love people. I think there might be one more. Maybe? Ha, yes, okay. Uh, what if evangelism is less about being right and more about finding truth? And that's a really important distinction, right? It's not about my way or your way or this way or that way, but it's about what's the truth in this situation. And the truth in every situation is basically always the same. That God loves people and that God has a vision for this planet. And that if we can work in these moments of debate, in these moments of suffering, in these moments of dialogue, to go beyond pontificating and debating and trying to win arguments and more into what is the true thing that is happening right here? What is the truth in our midst? I think we can find better ways of being in the world. So this brings up imagination. This way of being that Jesus calls us into is highly imaginative. It's not always logical. It's not always built on the reasonable thing. It's not built on black and white. It exists in the gray and in the color of things. And I think that faith is really about learning how to be imaginative in the world how to be okay with tension, how to be okay with not knowing things, how to not seek the answer to everything, but live in a way that just leans into the truth of the moment. And so that brings us to what God's really like. See, I told you we'd go really fast through those five things, especially those last ones. 
what God is really like is not angry, is not some power trip deity. God is not someone that is only for a certain set of people and not other people. God is not someone who causes wars and oppression. God is not some trump card that we hold in our pocket to make ourselves look better in front of other people. What God is really like is Matthew chapter 12. And I want to read it again. And this time I'm going to read it in the message because it it has just this nice, beautiful way of framing it a, a bit differently. One Sabbath, Jesus was strolling with his disciples through a field of ripe grain. Hungry, the disciples were pulling off heads of grain and munching on them. Some Pharisees reported them to Jesus. Ah, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath rules. Jesus said, really? Didn't you ever read what David and his companions did when they were hungry? How they entered the sanctuary and ate fresh bread off the altar, bread that no one but priests were allowed to eat? And didn't you ever read in God's law that priests carrying out their temple duties break Sabbath rules all the time and it's not held against them? There is far more stake here than religion. If you had any idea what this scripture meant, I prefer a flexible heart to an inflexible ritual. You would not be nitpicking like this. The Son of Man is no yes man to the Sabbath. He's in charge. When Jesus left the field, he entered their meeting place. There was a man there with a crippled hand. They said to Jesus, is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? And they were baiting him. He replied, is there a person here finding one of your lambs fallen into a ravine? Wouldn't even though it was Sabbath, pull it out? Surely kindness to people is as legal as kindness to animals. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. He held it out and it was healed. The Pharisees walked out furious, sputtering about how they were going to ruin Jesus. I could not love this line anymore. Two lines from this. There's far more at stake here than religion. And God's message that I prefer a flexible heart to an inflexible ritual. That sounds like such a, I don't know, like wildly, just like a wild claim to make. All throughout the Old Testament, though, there are prophets decrying this back to the people. God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. God thinks that your songs are like noisy cymbals clashing unless you're serving the poor, unless you're healing the sick, unless you're loving your enemy. So my invitation for us this morning is to invite us to think about this question. What should faith look like or what does faith look like in my context today? What does it mean for me as an individual to believe and love and move with God in today's context? Who is God for? Who should I be for? And what sorts of things should I orient my life around? I'm not giving you those answers. I think that's a you-God conversation. I think that that's why we exist together as a community, is to strive to answer those collectively and to help each other along that journey. So I pray that, that you find a new creativity 
to your faith. I pray that you find a new imagination to the story that you find yourself in. I pray that you find a new way of being or a slightly different way of being in the world today. And I pray that as an outcome of that, you see God wildly flourishing in the places you least thought that you'd find him. Um, I want to ask the band, I think, to come up. We'll do communion. I'll say a prayer. Um, there will be some prayer people at the sides too, I think, maybe possibly. Um, and CV's a little bit different. I think this is one of the most beautiful things about Central Vineyard. Uh, if you want prayer today, if you want to talk about someone, talk with someone about what you're feeling, not talk about someone, talk with someone about what you're feeling, um, this is a judgment-free zone, right? No one's watching you. Go get prayer. This is a place where people welcome you and people are here for you. So if you would like prayer for anything, please feel free to make your way uh, to the sides during this time. We'll take communion. Uh, communion is this uh, ancient rhythm that we celebrate that started with Jesus and his disciples on the night before he was betrayed, the night before he was put on trial. He was eating and feasting with his disciples and there was a moment uh, of reflection and Jesus took the bread that they were eating he broke it and said this is my body broken for you eat this in remembrance of me an allusion to the fact that Jesus knew that he would be literally physically broken on behalf of them but that also that there was something sacred happening in the midst of them living life together then after that he took the cup and raised it and he said this is my blood poured out for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. So everyone is welcome to participate in communion. You can come forward and participate. Uh, I'll pray, and then we'll do that. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this uh, life, for this moment that we have together. We're thankful for the gift of each other. Um, Father, we ask that you reignite our faith. We ask that you give us fresh imagination and new creativity. Uh, that you give us new eyes to see your movement in this world and uh, new convictions into how we should be orienting ourselves and living out our faith. Uh, Father, we know that your kingdom moves not because of our power or our control, but because of who you are. And I pray, God, that we would know you intimately and that we would know you wonderfully. Uh, Father, we love you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. We stand and come forward.